Folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June 5th, 2013, and this is episode 1143 of the Survival Podcast. And I got a great one for you. That's why I'm kind of excited. Get to have a good friend back on the air, Rachel, the Patriot Nurse. She'll be with us in just a little bit as soon as we take care of our housekeeping to discuss medical prep and some medical myths that are prominent in the uh, prepper world, especially on prepper forums and things like that. We'll have her just a bit. Uh, I want to go ahead and take care of our sponsor, sponsor of the day, number one today, jmbullion.com. You know, when I came out with tspmint.com and started selling our own custom silver medallions, uh, people said, well, what's going to happen to JM Bullion? And I went, absolutely nothing, because they sell silver eagles, they sell generic silver rounds, they sell pre-64 silver coinage. They sell all the stuff TSP Mint doesn't, and we sell all the stuff they don't. Our custom medallions are available only from us. So we both have competitive pricing. We both do the best job we can to take care of our customers. So check out jambullion.com today. Um, I know that we've had a lot of customers really satisfied with doing business with JM and some that have placed some pretty large silver orders. And I also know there's been a, a hiccup or two along the way, and there always will be in business. And I've always been able to get in touch directly with the owner of Jam Bullion. And uh, when there's a problem, get it corrected. And that's what I'm looking for in a sponsor, especially something that has the uh, the critical nature of precious metals. I really want to make sure that we have the right people doing that. Jam Bullion's a great partner. And if you're looking for silver eagles or generic rounds or generic bars, man, get on over to jambullion.com today. Next up today is Fortress Defense Consultants. I talk about the triangle of weapons ownership and being an effective weapons owner all the time. And those that triangle is have a gun, no gun. You can be the best trained gun owner in the world and you can have all the ammo you want. What are you going to do, throw boxes of ammunition at the guy, right? Ammo, you can have all the ammo in the world, no gun. Eh, what are you going to do, right? So we've got to have the gun and we've got to have the ammo. But what makes that gun effective? The operator, that's you. And that means you need training, and it means you need great training from great people to do a great job. That's what you'll find with Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today, again, FortressDefense.com. And kind of tying right into what we're going to talk about today, they will also teach you how to heal. They have medical training as well. If you are ever in a situation where a gun is used, somebody's probably going to be hurt. And that might not just be the bad guy. That might be you. That might be bystanders. And you need, if you're going to be walking around with something capable of lethal force, to know how to save lives as well. Fortress Defense can make you an effective operator, an effective lifesaver as well. I want you to think about this. How many times have we heard when a shooting happens, if there had been one armed citizen there, how many lives would have been saved? I agree 100%. That's why I think you should take, take, take training in how to be effective weapons operator, get your concealed carry, and go out and carry, and be that armed citizen. But I also usually think this. How many lives might have been saved if there had been half a dozen people there that knew how to render immediate aid until responders got there? How many lives could have been saved from basic medical knowledge? That does jive with what we're going to talk about today. So Fortress Defense for both of those things. Next up, I want to remind you guys about the Walking to Freedom Forum. Please get over to the Walking to Freedom Forum and vote. The voting on the naughty list is over, but how the naughty list will look, that's what we're voting on now. That will close in about two weeks, and then we're going to ratchet it up. 
I'm still in need of someone out there that's kind of like a whiz-bang person with like presentations, putting it into a PDF, making it look cool, to uh, volunteer. So when we have a final naughty list and all the data and the percentages and stuff like that, to put that together in a nice-looking little PDF so that when we do a press release on Walking to Freedom and talk about what it's all about, we can provide the data from the first round of voting. So if you're interested in doing that, please let me know. Send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll support this show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. Uh, that's a great way to help us out in the work that we're doing here and be an official member of the site. But it gets better than that. If you're buying stuff for long-term food prep, if you're buying tactical stuff, if you're buying gardening stuff, if you're buying stuff at all every year, if you're slowly working on building up your self-reliance and you're doing that at least partially beyond just skill development but actually acquiring things for long-term investments in your future, guess what? My discount program inside that membership program will pay you back over and over and over. I know people that have gotten their investment return on purchasing silver alone. I know people that just on making purchases from Western Botanicals, uh, one, one supporter alone get their money back every year. Uh, it's really a great deal. Uh, that's how I put it together. It's not designed just so you can, you know, contribute to the show via charity. It's designed to put money back in your pocket. I believe that's the way to do business. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. Remember, one of the best ways you can join right now is pay me with silver. I don't know how much longer and how much lower silver can go, or I'll keep it at an ounce a year, but that's what it is right now. One ounce a year, and you can pay for as many years as you want that way. So uh, I will take your silver. At the bottom of the page, you'll see pay by check, money order, or silver. Click that. There's a form to fill that out. Again, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, along with first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. I give all of you guys a service discount. Uh, if you want to learn more about that, send me an email with service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing and who you are and what you did, and send that before, not after you join. It makes it a lot easier for me to actually give you a discount if you ask for it before you pay. Those paying by silver that get the first responder discount, we just give you more time. So if it's a 25% discount, we give you 25% more time. So a quarter, or, or uh, let's say a, uh, a silver ounce for a first responder, uh, buys 16 months. 25% more time, one quarter, four months. That's how that works out. Um, anyway, with that, I do have, uh, or actually three months, I'm sorry. Uh, with that, I do have the uh, housekeeping wrapped up. And uh, I am excited to say, hey, Rachel, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. It's been a while. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, uh, you, you know, I'm calling you Rachel. That's your first name. That's all we reveal. Um, but you're known online as the uh, Patriot Nurse. And you've been on the show before, but as we were talking about offline, that's been quite a while ago. Can you tell people, how, how, did, you, how did Rachel become the Patriot Nurse? Oh, wow. <laughs> we probably should start out by you asking my mother what type of a child I was when I was <laughs> younger. Um, I, from a young age, I always had an interest in medicine. The game Operation was one of my favorite games when I was growing up. But naturally, I, um, I took initiative. I'm a firstborn anyway, but I took initiative in school whenever we were on trips and people were sick and vomiting from food poisoning. I was the one, you know, triaging supplies and passing out plastic bags for people to barf in. So not so much a glamorous beginning, but really what started my YouTube presence was um, I was somewhat active within the Patriot community, online, radio shows, etc. And recurrently, I would get 
the same questions. What do I put in a medical kit? What are considerations, you know, for um, a bug out bag? What do we need to think about if we're going to be in an extended leave type of uh, situation? And so rather than repeating myself, I thought, well, let's work smarter, not harder. I'll make a video and I'll put it up because I didn't see anybody else out there doing it. And the first video got, I want to say, like 2,000 views within a week or two. So it, it started from there and it just naturally progressed into what I'm doing today, which is making the videos, trying to get good information out there, going all around the country and the globe, teaching medical preparedness classes. So, I mean, that's what we have you to talk on, on the air to talk about today. So what, what are the things that are most likely to be true medical problems? And let's say, let's look at it from a different uh, standpoint. So it's just, well, if the shit hits the fan. Let's say we'll start out with in a, a short-term um uh, critical situation, let's say uh, a Hurricane Katrina type event where people are without systems of support for three or four weeks, but help is eventually coming. And then we'll look at a different scenario and ask the same question. Yeah, that is a great question. And I think it's an important question to ask. It is a very easy distraction within this community um, to focus on things that are glitzy and that give us a sense of godlike superiority, you know, gunshot wounds, tension thorax, you know, all these big flashy glitzy words that elicit an emotional response in us. Very often, we don't have that same emotional response to seemingly innocuous things like diarrhea, food poisoning, um, different types of upper respiratory diseases. These particular um, conditions and diseases, these are ones that are relatively commonplace now, but whenever we encounter down grid or down hygiene systems, they are amplified and they occur at an increasing rate. And because of that, those are really the areas we need to focus on in the short term, but also their expansion uh, and their and their amplification in the long term. And it's not glitzy. It's not what people really want to you know, go out and necessarily spend money on, but it takes a special person to take a step back, look at the situation, say, you know what? If I'm honest with myself, I'm going to take the emotion out of the equation, and I'm going to be honest about what my most likely anticipated scenarios are, and I'm going to tailor my prep work accordingly. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is not – um, dehydration due to diarrhea, the number one aftermath killer of disasters in the world. I believe that is correct right now. I need to check my data. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah but the dehydration, it's a big thing. And why is that? You know, we referenced Hurricane Katrina. Whenever your water is compromised, you're looking at a cascade of events that are very, very deadly very quickly. And why is that? Well, historically, human beings, like other animals, we congregate at shared sources of water. And whenever our water is compromised, you have the capability for disease to spread at an alarming rate because the source of the disease is the same for many, many, many people. So it certainly is a contingency that is worth uh, turning over in our heads and it's worth being honest about. It's worth doing the work to prepare for. Yeah, um, when we when we look at that scenario, it, it seems like it's one of the things that it almost doesn't look medical because the prevention is somewhat simple. And I think sometimes people lose con the concept that the, the best medicine is preventive medicine. Absolutely. And 
even if you don't want to view it as medicine, let's view it as work. If I want to eliminate calories spent, if I want to eliminate the amount of effort I'm going to have to put into something, I'd much rather do a little bit of prevention, a little bit of investment of time and energy and resources from the onset rather than having to try and undo all of the upset, you know, illness manifestations because I didn't do the work ahead of time. And, you know, it takes discipline. It takes discipline to sit down and problem solve and to critically think out what you're going to do and how you're going to implement clean water and how you're going to anticipate and prep for diseases whenever it doesn't work. Because, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men, we can have a beautifully laid out uh, bug out location or a bug out bag that's pristine with everything in it that's cross-referenced three different ways, you know, if if we're not honest about the problem and doing the work to, to fix a potential issue, then we're not really doing ourselves a favor. Let's look at it from a different type of a disaster. Let's, let's look at the potential for a, a serious global pandemic and how that changes things. And I, I think there's two things there. One, you got something that doesn't care how old you are, how much money you are, how, you know, how anything you are. It's an equal opportunity uh, infectious killer. Um, so one thing that people are really paying attention to right now, and I want your opinion on this kind of boiled into this answer, but like the, the MERS coronavirus, um, which is, you know, considered a pretty big threat right now, even though it really hasn't been a huge number of cases, but it's been pretty virulent. If something like that actually gets into um, a mutation where it's, it's doing heavy human-to-human -human transmission with a high death rate, high hospitalization rate, how does that change, you know, the, the medical needs that we're going to have? And then I'm making these complex because it's fun to do to you. Um, I think the other thing that people miss out on is if you have something like, let's say, a, a flu pandemic, it's not the only medical concern you have to worry about while everything's screwed up because of, of the one medical concern. Right. Well, there's wow. There's a lot there. <laughs> we'll, 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 how do we? Uh, I've been those? moving railroad ties all day. I'm making this easy. I'm throwing it all at you, and I can sit back for ten minutes. Now. There you go. Hey, hey, that's what I'm here for. Well, we'll eat that elephant one bite at a time. So the coronavirus that's coming up. Much of the hubbub about it is not necessarily about the amount of people that have been infected. It's about the death rate in those that have been positively diagnosed and it you know admittedly it's a pretty good amount now am i concerned about it when i look at normal disease patterns infectious disease especially respiratory borne disease it tends to die off in the summer months for many many reasons sunshine uv rays um, people not spending time indoors you know things like that typically a a virus that is spreading at a, at a pretty good clip it's going to die off naturally in the summer in and of its own inertia and, um, and limiting other limiting factors. When we look at mutations, certainly in viral lines, they're more likely to mutate down, meaning that they're more likely to mutate into something that is not as much of a threat to someone than they are to mutate into a super virus. That being said, it is possible. Anything is possible. Um, when we are looking at the likelihood of a pandemic, and this is something that I focus on in my curriculum, the Medical Prep 101, when we are looking at a pandemic as a potential disaster scenario, there are a few key points that we really need to take stock of, namely the <laughs> adventure noun of the day, 
long overdueness of it. We are definitely overdue for a pandemic, especially when you consider the advancements in global travel that have taken place since the last pandemic. In 1917, yes, we had transit of large numbers of soldiers, World War One. It was, you know, there's a lot of factors there that that lent to the spread of the 1917 flu. But now we have the ability because of airplane travel, namely, is what I'm thinking of, airplane travel, uh, but also with the tremendous amount of shipping going back and forth from China to the United States, etc. A a disease can take flight much more quickly now and spread over a larger area, area now than it could have back in the day. So really, it's just taking time to, all right, look at your watch, wait for it, it's coming. What's it going to look like? I don't know. Um, disease manifestations of upper respiratory uh, um, illnesses, they, they have a lot of common factors, which, again, is something that I, I focus on in problem solving and giving people a framework to deal with this stuff uh, in the Medical Prep 101 classes. But the pandemic um, scenario is something that is heavily under-addressed, I think, in um, this community, but it is one that really is has the greatest potential for a black swan scenario because it can affect people regardless of whether or not they've prepped, um, you know, for food and weapons, whatever. It affects people based on their, their body, based on their, um, their exposure to different um, things. So for me, whenever I'm taking stock of, of this scenario in particular, there's a few things that I want to make sure and have on supply, certainly masks in 95 or greater. I love, um, there's a, a link on my website actually to this pretty monstrous purchase of them for a really great price on Amazon. Those little bad boys, those masks, the, um, the N95s, they start to have degradation of their filtration, meaning they're not as effective after anywhere between 45 minutes to an hour and a half. Now, that being said, not trying to be alarmist, that doesn't mean that they don't do anything. But what it does mean is that their efficacy starts to decrease based on the amount of moisture in your breath. So you put them on, they last, you know, and they'll, they'll work great for a while, but they're not going to be used over and over and over again for days and days and days on end. So you know, that's just one thing. If people are looking for a proactive step, what's something that I can buy, something that I can effectively use and, and put up and store, masks are a great thing to store in quantity. So proactive that's step sense. for your pandemic stuff. Now, that makes sense. But here's my, 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 my the, the tail end question, and you, you almost got all of it, so that's pretty good. Um, I've talked to people that are like, you know, when we were worried about the, the the swine flu pandemic that wasn't, that I basically told people from the very beginning, don't listen to these people. Um, but, you know, well, I've got a stock of Tamiflu. And if, if this, you know, I'll, I'll just take that. And I'm like, well, you know, whether or not that's going to actually work, we'll just let that aside. But my my, uh, my question to them was, why do you think that if we had a raging pandemic of, let's say, a, a certain clavel flu, that when that was going on, when hospitals were overburdened, emergency workers were in short supply, uh, disruptions to the entire flow of civilization, that the only medical problem would be the, the pandemic in particular. Don't you think that there would be other things due to sanitation, due to the lack of services, lack of support, lack of medical care, etc., that would also become other medical emergencies? And usually what I got was a blank stare. Mm-hmm. That 
your question is spot on. Absolutely. There are, the pandemic, really, if you want to think about it, and remind me, I do want to touch on Tamiflu because it's really important. Okay. I also covered my classes, but don't let me forget. All right. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about the pandemic here for a second. The pandemic, when we talk about its, um, its multiplying factors and its reach of influence, the pandemic is just the beginning. It's the powder keg event that could set off a cascade of very, very negative manifestations of, of, of disease and break down in the infrastructure for sure. Now, let's look at recent history here. I want to say it was in Philadelphia this past year. It was right after Hurricane Sandy, and there were a whole bunch of people um, being quarantined for outside of a hospital, mind you, outside of the ER for um, the, the flu. They were basically setting up a, a makeshift triage area in, um, in Philadelphia for the ERs because they were so overwhelmed with people exhibiting flu symptoms. Or, or flu signs, I should say. So when you're looking at that issue just right there, whenever you have a pandemic, your normal medical infrastructure is going to be degraded or, or in some cases, non-existent, uh, meaning that if it's a bad enough pandemic, I know nurses and doctors take an oath, but I'm here to tell you if there's something wrong and my family are the ones affected, I ain't going to work. I'm staying home with my family. And I would expect that other nurses and doctors would probably do the same. I'm not saying that, you know, that's... Along with police department members, yeah. firefighters, uh -huh. you know, military members. Yes, absolutely. Right. So whenever you have a grid, an infrastructure, a normal operating system that is compromised, you have to look for pervasive impact. And it's like ripples in a pond, or if you want to think of it like the domino effect. It starts in one area, and it's going to spread and spread and spread. So if you've got people, for instance, in, um, in waste management, water sanitation that are sick or call in or don't show up to work, even if they have people on backup or, or relief, they're going to be probably overtaxed. They're going to be low on sleep. They may not be feeling so hot themselves. So that's just talking about the grid. If we wanted to parse it further, let's talk about people who, in order to stay away from hospitals, which I would recommend in the case of a pandemic. Yes. <laughs> they stay home with other diseases they've contracted, and it spreads to members of their family or to their community. So, you know, it there it's a, a multi, multi-layered onion here, if you want to think about it that way. It's not just a pandemic and then boom, it's over and everything's okay. It's the pandemic and what happens because the police officers don't show up. Um, response rates to uh, to crimes and to, um, to call-outs are, are going to be longer because of that. Um, certain areas are going to become more problematic from a crime rate. I mean, it goes, the list goes on and on and on. Well, so, I, I've always said this. There's like, it's like the, the Wonder Twins of Doom, right? There, there's two particular events that, that are always going to begat each other. If you have a bad enough pandemic, right, you're going to end up with an economic collapse, right, because you're going to shut down commerce, yes. right? You end up with, a, with, and I'm not talking about a recession like 2008, 2009. I'm talking about an economic collapse. You end up with an economic collapse, you're going to end up with either a pandemic or multiple epidemics because you're going to, they, they literally spawn each other. There's, there's almost no way around that correlation between the two. Absolutely. And when you talked about the economic impact of pandemic, you know, it's funny to me. I just got back from an economic summit in Las Vegas, and it seems to be that consumer spending and consumer confidence are <laughs> the anchor points for the Dow. Forget the other macroeconomic forces that are in play. So what everybody thinks, you know, if people spend, yeah. they clearly we're safe, clearly we're okay. But if people are sick and they're home, 
they ain't spending anything. They're not going out to eat. <laughs> They're not going and buying Barbie dolls. They're yeah. staying home trying to not be miserable. So, yeah. you know, on that end of the spectrum, it's certainly, even if, even if it didn't elicit an economic collapse, it certainly would be a burden on top of, in our case, an already very, very um, tempestuous, tempestuous balance on the edge of a knife. So, you know, I'm right there with you. And whether it's one or the other, the thing is about the pandemics and disease um, propagation, one does usually bring about uh, the other. Even if you can't call it a pandemic, certainly a disease blossom. Whenever you have um, economic instability, um, war, domestic disturbance, violence that disrupts, disease and food shortage always follow it throughout history. Guns, germs, and steel. It's, it's a pattern. So if we're honest about, about this issue, if we're honest about this problem and we're doing the work, then we deconstruct this portion of history here and we say, okay, hum, human beings and our behavior really hasn't changed that much. So this is how I'm going to tailor my prep work. I'm going to recognize that these are the issues. Yes, I can store stuff, but really, honestly, folks, I, skills Skills and knowledge, it cannot be taken away from you. Our stuff may get washed away in a flood, God forbid, or the house burned down, or whatever. The knowledge that you have, the skills that you have mastered and attained, those are transportable, they pay dividends, and they cannot be confiscated. So what would you say maybe the top five things are that every single prepper should know how to do from a medical standpoint? Oh, that's a great question. Actually, I teach all of these in my <laughs> class. Aren't you lucky? Yeah. Um, something that everyone needs to be able to do, obviously CPR. Actually, I don't teach CPR because it's it's covered in other um, dedicated areas, Red Cross, CPR, first aid, etc. cetera. Uh, everybody does need to know how to do that, not necessarily from a prepping standpoint, but mainly because you're most likely to, to know you're most likely to um, encounter someone um, needing assistance that requires CPR, if that, if that makes any sense. If you're going to have to, you know, bust out your Superman shirt, CPR is probably going to be what you're, what you're going to need to employ rather than your gun, for sure. Um, so CPR, that's an important thing. Now, as far as um, an individual prepper outside of, you know, CPR and, and Red Cross First Aid, I want people to know how to take a blood pressure. That's why I teach it in my class. Um, knowing how to take a blood pressure, knowing how to, to gather information about people that are not doing well under your care, that is vital. Um, <laughs> no pun intended, vital sign. I want people to know how to take a blood pressure. I also want people to know how to do physical assessment. Physical assessment, meaning how to check the body system over. What are we looking for? What is our normal? What is not normal? Um, this is something that can you find it online? Yes, you can, but having the eyes on of a qualified instructor who is, is not only knows how to do it themselves, but knows how to communicate the development of that skill to you, way important. So knowing physical assessment. Also, knowing how to, to wrap a sprained ankle. I mean, that sounds perhaps a little bit silly, but let's face it. If we encounter a scenario where our norm has been changed, where God forbid, you know, the grid goes down, something like that. It is fair to assume that we are going to be performing more manual labor. And if we are performing more manual tasks, having gone basically from zero to 60, not doing them every day to, oh, gosh, now I have to do them every day. The propensity for incurring injuries secondary to that work 
just went up astronomically. So knowing how to uh, to wrap a sprained ankle or knee or you know provide support, external support to a sprained elbow, these are important things also. And also knowing how to do basic wound care. Again, something I teach in my class. It's important because when wounds get complicated, especially when you don't have a higher echelon of care to take the person to for whatever reason, be it you don't have the money, be it you don't like Obamacare and you're not going <laughs> Uh, or be it's it, not there. Yeah, <laughs> it's not there. So um, those are those are important things, and it's difficult for me to to break it down into five things that everybody should need to know because everybody's situation is different. There are key principles of clearly of assessment and of being able to take care of injuries as they arise. Um, but each person has to be able to sit down, have an honest appraisal of their situation, their relative risk for whatever medical disease or injury, and then tailor their prep work accordingly. So that's that's kind of where I fit in. Um, actually, to, to share a little bit, uh, my Medical Prep 101 alumni, uh, she sent me, her name is Sephora, actually, she's, uh, she's given me permission to share this. She's based in Texas. And uh, she sent me a message, it was, I think it was three weeks ago by now, and her husband uh, was out um, at a family gathering, and had an ATV accident, and she sent me this message, and it, it, honestly, it made me cry. Um, she told me, she said, Rachel, I want you to know that what you taught me in that class helped save my husband's life. You taught me in that class to always know my normal, or my, in this case, her husband's normal, like the back of my hand. Because my husband normally has a, a calm demeanor. It wasn't readily apparent to everyone else around me and around him that he was in serious trouble. But because of what you taught me and because of what I learned in the class, it gave us precious minutes before that the helicopter, the uh, emergency services came to be able to take care and render aid to him. And when when she told me that, it just it really, really affected me because it's one thing to go around the country and teach, but it's another thing to have one of your alumni contact you and say, you know what, this made a difference in my life and in the lives of my family members. So how does that relate to, you know, being honest about the problem and, and tailoring it to your needs? For her, if she's a young, young woman, she uh, doesn't have any physical issues per se. But she learned in the class, she learned assessment, she learned about the norms, she learned about what are your basic, your milestones to tuck in the back of your mind, having a framework that is applicable wherever you go. So by having a good framework and a good, deep, thorough understanding of um, key elements of medical preparedness and also key elements of, of assessment, it enabled her to have portability with that skill set. So I would encourage folks to seek out skill sets whether it's blood pressure or physical assessment or wrapping of a wound, et cetera, to seek out skill sets that have a high degree of transportability. It's one thing to, yes, I know how to do an emergency tracheotomy. Yes, I know how to uh, uh, pack combat gauze into a wound. All of these things are important. But if you're going to seek after skill sets, seek after those that are going to give you the most options and have the most applicability and portability wherever you go. What are your thoughts, because you're talking about wound care, on, on, on how important a skill set suturing is? You have people that think it's like one of the most important things a person could learn, and then you have people like Dave Canterbury that would tell you if you need more than duct tape and a rag to fix it, you need a helicopter. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty fair statement. Um, I, I, I like that. I've never heard that before. But yeah, that's like Dave's that. thing. He says, you need more than duct tape and a clean cloth to fix a wound, you need a helicopter. <laughs> Well, yeah, let's talk about suturing. Suturing is, again, it's one of those Rambo things. It is a 
It is an area of focus that makes people feel like Superman. I could do this, therefore, you know, I'm prepped. Bottom line is that the data, for the most part, on, on wound healing and on infection rates, um, wounds that are sutured versus wounds that have external wound closures like butterflies or stary strips, they don't do as well. But it sells a lot of sutures and it sells a lot of pig feed and it sells a lot of, um, <laughs> of, of medical supply. And, you know, it's sad, Jack. It's, it's sad because we as Americans are so indoctrinated with this culture of consumption that we're, in many cases, we're preppers via consumption primarily. Uh, I'm prepped because of what I bought, or I'm prepped because I watched this video, this video, rather than I live my life this way. And my skills that I have, um, that I've built up and that I've mastered, et cetera, those go with me wherever. So, you know, on, on the suturing end of the spectrum, you know, could it possibly be utilized one day? Yeah, comma, but. Um, it is a skill, and like all skills that are not regularly practiced, it has a perishable shelf life. So just because you've sutured on a pig's foot, you know, X number of months or X number of years ago, don't assume that it's going to come back to you in your hour of need just because you've done it once. You will not, in James Yeager's words, you will not default to your level of training. You will default to your level of mastery. So suturing, is it glitzy? Is it sexy? Sure. Is it practically applicable to life? Not so much. Well, in a lot of instances, too, I think people are of a misunderstanding. If a wound's bleeding and you suture it, that stops the bleeding. And generally, if you have serious bleeding, it's, it's not a skin issue. It's a blood vessel issue. And until you stop the bleeding from that blood vessel, especially if it's a larger vessel, you can suture it up all you want. And all you're going to do is end up with a, an arm or a leg full of blood, and that prevents, presents its own problems. Yep, that sure is true. You know, there, uh, from a from a surgical standpoint, there are multiple tissue layers, and when you've got uh, deep tissue involvement, you're going to have to do uh, different, certainly different types of of suture knots. You're going to have to use different medium. That's one thing I think a lot of people are not aware of is that it's not just enough to have three O silk. Yeah, I have three O silk. Well, yeah, that's fine, but you know what happens when you try have, to put muscle back together? Yeah, I mean, it, there, there's a lot of considerations. It's not as simple as people like to think, but again, you know, they they don't know what they don't know. So I would much rather, whenever I'm you know teaching people about uh, wounds, I would much rather focus on things that are minimally invasive because let's face it suturing is invasive you are piercing through in many cases healthy tissue to try and approximate tissue that is compromised so you know you have to consider that whenever you as a layperson in a disaster are undertaking primary care of someone you don't have the i guess i should say uh, we shouldn't be cavalier with performing invasive procedures on people. Yeah, I know that it, that it's popular to talk about, but I want to be responsible. I'm not so interested in being popular if it doesn't help my patient. Gotcha. Let's talk about some other things that get thrown around with wound care. Um, we keep Celox, uh, and it does work, I can tell you, because I dropped the hood of a truck on my head, and it wasn't a big deal, but I just wanted to see if it worked, so I threw some <laughs> on there, and it worked. Um but what you hear a lot of times in forums and all is just shove a bunch of cayenne pepper in there, and it'll it'll do the same thing oh, quick pot or cellox does. Oh my! No. How, how's that work out? No, 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 no. <laughs> um, no. Does cayenne pepper work for uh, possibly for smaller lacerations, teeny tiny scratches? Yes, it does. Uh, does cayenne so the pressure? Uh, I, I know. Imagine <laughs> that. Imagine 
mention that. No, we just we want to whip out our cool stuff. We want to rip out our MacGyver stuff because then it makes us feel powerful and Supermanish. Um, the issue with the hemostatic agents. Okay, um, quick clot, Celox Rapid. All, you know, these these agents. Cayenne does not come close, and I I have no idea where that originated, but it's just dead dog wrong. It's What's just up? wrong. Um, don't yeah, don't do that. Now, granted, they have you know different applications clearly. So could you know could one of them work in a situation you know where you do have a smaller air, surface area affected? Sure, but you know I'd rather just like you said do direct pressure. Why would you go and introduce another substance into a wound if you know that direct exactly. pressure it is going to work? It's just you know. It's not the smartest thing. So keep it simple, stupid. The KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid, and and roll forward from there. Let's kind of move into some thoughts about, like, long-term grid down. You know, let's say the economy has finally imploded. Um, There's support in some areas, not in others. People are having to, in many cases, do things the way we did before, let's say, the 1950s in a rural area, let's say, with things like childbirth. And I think there's this belief that before, like, 1949 and back, like, every other woman that had a baby died. Um, I don't know how we'd have any people here if that was the case. So, <laughs> yeah, there's a few uh, statistical inconsistencies. That. <laughs> but, I mean, how would we deal with things like childbirth in a situation like that? I mean, because a lot, you know, back in the day, there were midwives everywhere. You, 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 you know, you yelled out enough, one showed up. And today, there's it's a very specialized thing, and people are often thought of as weird if they would even do such a thing as use a midwife. Um, but how do you see us having some level of preparedness for dealing with things like childbirth uh, in a in a you know a short or a long term grid down? It doesn't matter how long the grid's down or how long sports not available. If you need it and it ain't there, right? Okay, great, great question there. And you hit on something that is one of my absolute passions in life. I love mothers and babies. Love them. Uh, did that work specifically for one, two, three, almost four years, and loved every minute of it in a um, natural childbirth setting. First off, we need to be honest again about the circumstances around us. In the United States, we have, and I'm, I'm please don't misunderstand, folks. I am not speaking against people who have had childbirth difficulties. Um, to be unkind, we have had two, in some cases, three generations of women who have been artificially either kept alive or who have been artificially um, propped up for pregnancy. Because of this, we have, in, uh, in my opinion, I don't know how this you would do a study to corroborate this, but because of this situation, we have um, a, an epidemic of women in this country who are pregnant but who are unhealthily pregnant, who are pregnant but not naturally. They've had to have... Um, different measures to um, to keep their pregnancies or to get pregnant in the first place. And what we need to understand about the body is that if the body is not willing to get pregnant, there's probably a darn good reason for it. And we need to dig deeper rather than forcing the body to try and, you know, keep, keep a child when it's clearly saying, I'm not healthy enough right now to do this. So when we're looking at a scenario that really could be very traumatic, if we did have a long-term grid-down disaster, we have a lot of women right now who are pregnant, who um, who are, I'm sorry to say this, who are who are morbidly obese, and pregnant women who are obese, they do not birth easily. They have a much greater rate of complications. Um, women 
who have other issues like bleeding disorders, et cetera, who are, are pregnant. They have also received care historically um, in, a, in a hospital setting that has kept them safe and alive in many cases. That will not be there. So on one hand, is birth something that is natural? Absolutely. Uh, are most women who are pregnant naturally good candidates for low intervention birth? Absolutely. But we are in a kind of precarious situation, and I believe I am the only person that's talking about this right now. We are in a situation where if we do go into a long-term um, scenario with the women who are unhealthily pregnant right now, we're going to have a day of reckoning, and it's going to be bad, unfortunately. I don't like to be a doom and, you know, a gloom type of person, but this is, that's my honest appraisal of the situation now. That being said, in this country, we do not have a familiarity of birth, of natural birth, tucked in the back of our minds. Um, the way I teach this in my classes, and pardon, pardon being a little bit rough here, we have a lot of women in this country who don't know how to open up their hoo-ha and drop a baby out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you like that, come to Medical Prep 201. There's plenty more where that came from. Okay. Uh, but we honestly, we have women who have been indoctrinated and told that they cannot give birth without the assistance of some person in a white coat in a hospital. So there is this kind of element of fear circulating back there with women. So how do we address that for our purposes today? How do we how do we practically prepare for this? Number one, uh, come take 201, prep 201. I do cover this in the 201 curriculum. But um, if you're looking for something in the immediate um, you know, grabbable future as a reference. The American College of Nurse Midwives has a publication called Giving Birth in Place, a guide to emergency, I believe it's emergency childbirth. Wonderful. I want to say it's like three or four pages. It's a short read. It's great. I, I recommend it. I have some videos also about putting together a birth kit, which I recommend um, for your for your listeners. But what we need to understand is that for most women who are healthily pregnant, the, the least amount of intervention is usually the best. If you leave her alone and if you let her do her thing, her body's going to take care of itself naturally. I'm a huge fan of home birth uh, with a midwife. <laughs> not, not so much unassisted home birth, but I am a huge fan of having your baby at home or at a birth center. I love birth centers, especially freestanding birth centers that practice minimal intervention with the mother. Uh, women. Intuitively, you know what you don't have at one of those? Say again? You know what you don't have at a birth center? What? 150 super sick old people, one floor up or down. Ah, yes, imagine that. Actually, my best friend, um, a few years ago, when she had her second child, her little girl, she brought her home from the hospital because she had her at the hospital, had the epidural and all that other stuff, um, electively, and um, she was induced. Baby came out. Um, baby was separated from her for a little bit. I want to say she was taken down to the NICU for maybe 24, 48 hours. Brought her back up. Lo and behold, she brings baby home. Baby's got a MRSA infection in her nipple. And she was, like, what, five days old? Four or five days old? Wow. Yeah. So, you know, the child has already been colonized with malevolent bacteria from her first week of life. I got, I mean, I got issues with that. And you, you do raise a very, very valid point about... Um, you know, children being uh, at risk in hospitals, giving birth in hospitals. Hospitals are where people go to die. Hospitals yeah. are for sick people. I don't want to have my baby there unless I, I'm on the verge of it. I've always put it this way. If I have a yield sign in my spleen after a car wreck, please take me to a hospital and get a surgeon to fix me, if, if at all possible. <laughs> but otherwise, I'm doing my damnedest to stay the hell out of there. Everybody there... 
that's not a doctor or a nurse is sick or they wouldn't be there. Yep, that's very true. And that's something that we need to, to tuck in the back of our, our minds also in the event of a, a grid down disaster that I don't want to be taking people to hospital. I want to try and stay as far away from that because of the risk for contracting disease. And forget even contracting it, just propagating it. You bring it in there and everybody else gets it and then everybody else is worse off. So yep. if I can keep people... Uh, my family, my loved ones away from it and take care of them at home as best as I can, that is a win-win for me. And I'm here to tell you right now, when the Obamacare stuff goes through, it's going to be a disaster. And every honest physician and nurse that I've talked to is dreading it. Physicians that I know are getting out of this country. They're leaving and going to Costa Rica and Ecuador because they don't want to be part of it. And I can't say I blame them. Our quality of care is going to go down and that's all there is to it. So, uh, it's the death of the GP. The general practitioner, for all intents and purposes, is closing up shop. They don't, you know, the people only the the docs that are staying around. It's it's only people that are like specialized and stuff like that. And I I don't know how long that'll stay, but I know of multiple general practitioners that are just like I'm not bothering. And I know of people that were considering you know full on med school that now decided I still want to be in this world, but they're either doing the NP or the PA thing. They're, they're like, it's not even worth having an MD now. Yeah, the nurse practitioner, I've had so many people push me and say, Rachel, you should go. You should go for an advanced degree. You have the capability. I'm like, no, I'm not incurring <laughs> debt. And it's like, seriously. And the people, honestly, the people that are smart right now, they're not going into advanced degrees because they see the writing on the wall. It does not make sense for me financially to incur debt or to to sacrifice potential gains by, quote-unquote, investing, I would call it fleecing, in, in advanced education. Now, as, you know, granted, there needs to be some caveats here. Yes, we do need people for the greater good, blah, blah, blah. But the nurse practitioners under, under Obamacare, they are going to be poorly compensated. They're already poorly compensated yeah. now yeah. for what they do. It's going to be even worse. Their patient ratios are going to go through the roof because you're going to have so many people that have entrance and access to care now that didn't have it before. And odds are they're probably not going to take care of themselves. Americans, and I'm sorry to say it, Americans are historically very, very lazy and lackadaisical with proactive health care. And it's not going to get any better when it's government subsidized. And we go to the doctor for bullshit. I mean, I, I, I don't want to be the one that's being a jerk now. But seriously, I asked my wife flat out, and most of the patients they saw was she, when she was nursing were on Medicaid. Uh, or Medicare, actually, because they were kids. She was at a pediatric clinic. And I said, what percentage of those of people you see every day really just don't need to be there? And she said, 50, easy. And if you give the same type of coverage to everybody, and then 50% of the people that are taking up space don't need to be there, it can't, it can't do anything other than degrade care for those who do need to be there. Absolutely. And what you're also facing is the increase in your patient load, but also um, the lack of resources, lack of infrastructure. Now, okay, to, to highlight this issue, let's talk about our roads in the United States right now. Our infrastructure, crumbling bridges. Oh, we're stuff, screwed. Oh, we, we use this every day. We use the yeah. bridges, and this is stuff that we can see of, red, of, um, of immediate import and impact. I mean, somebody drives over a crumbling bridge, they die. All right, this yeah. is the stuff we can see. What are we not seeing about the medical databases, keeping um, information together, not screwing up people's names, not screwing up their allergies? If you think it's bad now, just wait till it's free. <laughs> well, there ain't no free lunch. And it ain't yeah, yeah let me tell you how it really feels. 
and, and, and should equality. And that's what we're headed for. And it's interesting that you know that, you know, because we keep hearing, well, other nations have this, other nations have that. But our doctors are leaving this nation to go to those nations that have what we're supposedly what they're going to do here because they don't. Costa Rica has what you would call a universal health care system, but it's nothing like Obamacare. Correct. It doesn't, it doesn't function that way. Um, it, that's why doctors are actually choosing to go there now. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's funny that you mentioned this. I was at the, um, the economic summit it's called The Money Show in Las Vegas a few weeks ago. I think it was like six or seven weeks ago. And Steve Forbes was asked this question. P.S. Actually, Steve Forbes was a very, very kind man on a personal level. I thought he was very, he was a sweetheart. Um, someone from the audience asked this question, and they said, Mr. Forbes, what do you foresee as potential opportunities for growth in the United States in health care after the implementation of Obamacare? Steve Forbes looks at him and he says two words, Indian reservations. And I immediately got it. I'm sitting here, whoa, and it, it echoed throughout the room, and it was kind of uh, embarrassing because everybody looked over at me. But Steve Forbes, he, he expounded on, he says, look, Indian reservations are outside of the, um, they don't have to implement federal law. There is an opportunity for venture capitalists who want to establish in the United States really good magnet hospitals with the best doctors, but it's going to have to be inside Indian reservations. Hmm. I thought, that is brilliant. I was that thought, actually is brilliant because they're technically a sovereign state unto themselves. Bingo. And you, there's nothing to prevent you from going there for care. And there's nothing to prevent them from saying, we take this type of coverage, we don't take that type of coverage. By the way, we always will take cash. Yeah. Brilliant. I, I see that, and I see I see another thing that, that seems to be growing exponentially throughout the, the, the country, because these places are not required to take insurance, and they're not a doctor's office, they're not a hospital. And that's like the care nows, the walk in clinics and things like that that you know, that you walk in, you can you can make an appointment and fifteen minutes later show up and get seen and back out the door. Um those seem to be growing right now, uh pretty exponentially. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that they are probably going to become the the PCP, the primary care provider of the future, which I'm not exactly sure how I feel about that. I haven't really kind of worked out all the details in my mind uh, because at least with an old school primary care provider, you have an established relationship and they know you by name, et cetera, versus... Let me tell you how it can work better, okay? Okay. My, My wife has an allergic reaction to like wasp and bee stings. Generally, it's not that bad. She's not the kind of person that has to run around with an EpiPen or something like that. Um, but a few years ago, she uh, was enraged by some wasps that had already stung my niece and didn't listen to anybody and uh, let loose on a, a wasp colony underneath a deck with a can of wasp spray. And she got stung in the face several times, and she swelled up like a grapefruit. Uh, we were in and out of one of those places in about 15 minutes with her getting a shot. That's excellent. And you would never do that at a hospital. And no. Never do that at a basic doctor's office either, especially it was like 7 o'clock in the evening. I mean, we were down the road, in the door, They had, and it was even crowded because there was a bunch of like girls in there for cheerleading physicals or going back to school physicals or something. And then we just walked up to the front counter. As soon as they looked, they were like, oh, hell, get in here. Boom, done, gone. And, and that type of thing. Or I don't remember. I think you were she's, – she's here now. She had some flu or bug or something a couple of years ago. 
and we want, you know, it's like, yeah, I think this is worth going to the doctor for. You go online, you make an appointment, so your appointment's going to be at 10 o'clock. You show up at 10 o'clock, you go in, you're, you're, they see you, you're done. So I've started to see these things as being far more efficient for acute care, for, for acute needs of things that are not life-threatening but do need attention. Um, there was another time where she was having some chest issues, and it was it ended up not being – it was like basically it was acid reflux. But she was – her blood pressure, I, we kept checking her blood pressure, and it was getting higher because of um, because she was convinced there was something wrong. So you know how that works, right? As soon as you think you have a problem cardiac-wise, your blood pressure continues to elevate because you're stressed, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So we go in. They threw it. We went to this clinic. They threw an EKG on her. It was like five minutes after we walked in the door. Yeah, you're fine. Her blood pressure dropped 20 points because she wasn't worried about it anymore. So in all three of those scenarios, the care was quick. It was adequate. It was immediate. And it was a, the EKG thing. We, did a, we paid cash. They gave us a discount, 65 bucks in and out the door in 15 minutes. Now that's to me. There's like that is a, a tremendous way for people that are willing to like go. You know what? You went to school for four years, then you went to med school, then you went and did it. Yeah, you know what? Your time's worth some money. I'm willing to pay for it. Right. There's um, there's a lot of places actually online too that you can if you need blood work or lab work, you can send off and get it done much more cost effectively than getting it done. That's something that um, that I'm actually going to end up doing fairly soon. Um, but yeah, the the healthcare system in this country, as problematic as it is right now, I think if you're looking for something to medically prepare for, that is a certainty to happen. That right there is going to be one of them. So knowing how to take care of yourself and your family at home to the best of your ability, and having the skills and knowledge to be able to make that a reality, that's going to be a very very important thing. What are some of the chronic illnesses? Um, I mean. Diabetes springs to mind, but if, if you look at type 2 diabetes, I see a collapse as a perfect solution to type 2 diabetes. When you can't eat 40, uh, you know, um, Krispy Kreme donuts a day on food stamps, your type 2 diabetes will fix itself. Uh, but then there's type 1 diabetes. Are there other chronic medical conditions that the people that maybe are affected with those, specifically people that are, you know, morbid obesity, obviously, but stop eating? Right. You know, I mean, things that people don't have. There's not an easy answer for even now that are going to be critically important that there's some preps made if there is a long term failure of support. Yeah. COPD, all of the pretty much all of the smoking induced respiratory conditions that require oxygen supplementation. That's going to be a big one. I mean, can people get by without it? Depending on the severity of your infliction. Yeah, you can. Um, but it's not going to be pleasant for sure. Anybody who has um, uh, wound maintenance, like chronic wound maintenance types of things, I'm thinking about um, you know the little old grannies who have to be turned you know with bed sores. Um, the thing mm-hmm. the thing that is rather morbid to consider is that we have an, an aging population in this country, and the people that are around in many cases, and again, with the utmost respect, I say this, the people that are around are not necessarily living healthier longer. They're living sicker longer with more intervention. And because of that, they are going to be the first ones to pass uh, in the event of a, um, of a grid issue. So, um, and, and, you know, it was this was touched on a wee bit in the One Second After book, 
Uh, and I, I think it's a, a real thing to, to tuck also to tuck in the back of our minds. It is a unfortunate reality that we would be faced with on the um, the proactive side of things. You know, what can we do? What are some uh, what are some conditions, some diseases that you know we have some power to affect positive change? And well, clearly you've mentioned diabetes. Um, the weight weight issue for a lot of people is is something that's going to have to be fixed, and it is somewhat self correcting whenever your caloric intake is reduced <laughs> and your your caloric expenditure is amped up via manual labor, etc. Um, but for folks with well, there's people that won't survive that that no, at this point, right? No, I, mean, I mean, we. I, I don't like saying this because it's unkind, but let's be real and honest. I'm not afraid of being honest with folks. We got a lot of people in this country. I would hazard a guess anywhere between 10 and 20 percent of the population who, if the grid was gone, will be gone in six weeks to two months. And that right there would be a great precipitator for a pandemic. Well, as I say, that's a problem in of itself because we're on the best of times. The death care industry is not prepared to deal with a death of 10 percent of the population. Oh, no. Yeah. All right. So in the worst of times, we're certainly not prepared to deal with it. And I know it is a morbid subject, but it's it's a reality. And if you have a bunch of dead people laying around, you've got a real problem. Um, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll end up stacked four to a, four to a, four a piece to uh, those FEMA ca- caskets. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, with some of the people that would fall over, and again, I don't want to be unkind, but only two of them would go in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and, and there is that, that the, the problem with morbid obesity, and I'm not talking about people that are a little overweight. I'm not talking about people that are 100 pounds or overweight. I'm talking about people that are two, 300 pounds, not total, overweight. Because um, the government's definition of what's overweight is not something I agree with. If I weighed the 165 pounds that uh, they, they say I should weigh, you could probably uh, use me to raise money for starving Ukrainians or something. I, would, I mean, <laughs> I would just look really bad at 165 pounds. But you know what I'm talking about, the people that can make part of their finger disappear in their elbow. Um, I'm not being mean there, but it's just the truth that a lot of those people are not just overweight, but they're also on government support, mm-hmm. right? So they're feeding themselves with food stamps on the lowest, cheapest junk food that they can get. Um, and if, if, if that gets cut off, you, you know, you always, you know, you, you, it's easy to be harsh on people and just say, well, if you didn't eat so much, you wouldn't be so fat, but you got to eat something. And so you've got an overweight person now that goes into serious malnourishment with health issues. Yep. And, and that's where your number of, you know, two weeks to, to two months comes in, that there's people that they're just not going to make it. And that does cause a lot of other concerns. Yeah, and I think something we need to consider, too, is that the people that would fall into this category, they aren't necessarily the ones who you would expect. We have a lot of people who are walking around who are very, very heavy, and the reason they're heavy is because they're eating poor food that's not nutrient-dense. It's just calories, and so they're running these nutrient-trace mineral deficiencies all the time. But you don't have to be super big to be running those deficiencies. Um, people with celiac, with um, with gluten issues, I'm one of those people. I am gluten intolerant. I cannot eat it. I eat it, and it wreaks havoc in my system. So if you have not anticipated ways to meet those voids, to, to meet those needs, um, you're going to be looking at not only malnutrition, but the diseases that manifest secondary to malnutrition. And that right there is, I actually, I did a video called Collapse and the Subsequent Death Waves, which I really encourage people to watch. It was back in my wearing shades, too cool for school day. Um, 
But that video right there kind of lays out my thinking and also what you can expect as a pattern of, of disease and death with a long-term grid-down disaster in this country. And it ain't pretty, but I'd rather be honest and know it's coming than have my head in the clouds and pretend it ain't there. Um, let me just stop you real quick on the gluten comment because there's people with celiacs and it's very, very evident that gluten is bad and they have all of these health issues, um, uh, autoimmune type diseases, inflammation issues. You get them off gluten, it goes away. And those people are easy to identify. And then there's the rest of us. And I just don't think things with gluten in them should be used very much for human food. Um, I think there's a certain level of tolerance that's acceptable and a little bit here and there for people that don't have it, a, a chronic issue with it is fine. But I can tell you personally, uh, from dropping about 80 pounds and getting off of, and I went paleo, so there's the, the gluten is just one thing to go away there. Um, you don't know how it affects you when you've eaten it your entire life. Yes. And when you stop eating it, you feel better, but you don't know how much better you feel because it's a very long process to, to, for the body to detoxify. Then you decide, you know what? I'm on the road. I've been doing this for a long freaking time. Eating one big breakfast ain't going to hurt me. And you go and you scarf down chicken fried steak with a couple biscuits and a bunch of gravy. And the next day, you feel like dog crap. And then you realize, I walked around feeling that way all the time. I just didn't know it because you didn't have anything to compare it to, if that makes sense. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Something that I noticed when uh, I was actually in Israel one, two, was it a year ago? Yeah, it was November 2010. And um, there were me and two other ladies that were in the group that I was with, uh, we were gluten intolerant. But one of the chicks, um, she was from Hawaii. And she actually was a little bit more adventurous than I was. She could eat the Israeli flour. And we figured mm. out that... It's your wheat. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's ancient. Um, but we also figured out the gluten here in the United States is, ge is genetically modified in many cases. Or, sorry, the wheat is genetically modified to have a higher gluten content for the sake of use in the, the bread, um, the baking industry. Just to be technically accurate there, it's not genetically modified, it's hybridized. Thank you, thank you, uh, sorry. Yes, um, you are but, correct. But you're... you're no, unfortunately, you're... you're, you're a, probably about to be proven correct because they just found a field full of GMO wheat in Oregon. And they don't know how it got there. And there, if you read the article on it, the bureaucrat drives you crazy because she's like, with it being as heavily regulated as it is, I don't know how it got there, as though wheat would obey her regulation. Um, <laughs> you know, they did these trials with GMO wheat about 10 years ago. And then there was such like, uh, basically Europe and Japan and the rest of Asia all said, well, we'll ban imports of your wheat if you do that. So Monsanto said, yeah, we're not going to do that, like like they decided on their own or something. Um, but apparently during those trials, some of the GMO wheat got out. But our gluten levels in our wheat are elevated because it makes more fluffy bread, basically, I guess, is the whole point. But the ancient wheat varieties do seem to have a lot less of an effect on people. And then there are other grains, you know, like spelt, that are that are very, very old grains that people seem to do just fine on as well. Yeah, I'm one of those people, I, I can't eat spelt. I cannot even eat gluten-free oats. My system is that, like, eh, we don't like it. more of a carbohydrate issue, then. 
Yeah, I can eat potatoes all day long. I think really? it's just, yeah, um, potatoes I can eat. I can eat almond meal. I can eat um, barley very, very well. I'm, I haven't quite figured out what it is. It's probably this very interesting hybrid of being a 12th generation Scots-Irish mountain woman from East Tennessee and having a one-eighth <laughs> Prussian fighting hellion mix in there. <laughs> you know, something doesn't agree with some of the grains, then, especially out of the subcontinent. So mm-hmm. that makes sense. Um I want to bring you back to something you told me not to let you forget. Unfortunately, I wrote it down. Tamiflu. You wanted to say something about Tamiflu. Yes. Okay. So, Tamiflu. My father, bless his heart, ever since 2001, has had eight boxes of Tamiflu in the door of my family's refrigerator. Okay. (laughs) He doesn't know what he's going to use it for, but he's ready whenever it comes. Now, I actually give a pretty good amount of coverage to the use of antivirals, antibiotics, et cetera, in the curriculum in my Medical Prep 101 class. So if people want to hear more about this, then, you know, I encourage them to come. With Tamiflu, in recent years, especially with H1N1 and um, uh, a few of the more recent viral strains that have been labeled as pandemics or epidemics, Tamiflu has not worked in, in many cases. Uh, they have been Tamiflu-resistant. Uh, the bird flu, I believe, uh, was the H1N1 was Tamiflu-resistant. The thing is about Tamiflu is that in order for it to be used per the, the indication on the, the insert, basically it's factory-labeled usage, it needs to be given within the first 48 hours, right? 72 is pushing it, but ideally within the first 48 hours. If you're sick, do you really even know if your body's going to kick it by 48 hours? No. I mean, if we're going to be honest, it usually takes about 7 to 14 days for the body to effectively mount a defense and kick out the invading organism. From my perspective, recognizing that we want to be as minimally invasive and as minimally interventive as possible with our bodies, I'm not really going to use it. To be quite honest, I'm not a fan of it. I'm not a fan of it. I don't feel like the, the data effectively establish its, um, its usefulness, certainly nowadays. And I'll tell you this little tidbit, too. London Daily Telegraph, a while back, it was with the big bird flu outbreak. There were kids that were treated with it. And actually, the, the small group, it was a smaller sample size. The children that were treated with Tamiflu, they had worse outcomes hmm. than people who were not treated with Tamiflu. Now, I'm sure that'll, you know, not be a very happy thing for a lot of people in the pharmaceutical industry, but there you have it. So for me, uh, I, especially at 48 hours, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. I don't like Tamiflu. Uh, I think that it is a very, very slippery slippery slope to... A do you think you can speed mutations? Probably. I'd have to think about that a little okay. bit longer. On the top of my, could you speed mutations like in a viral line? Yeah, like the, the clays of the flu and the mutations. Well, they, they did it in Star Trek. Didn't you watch the Genesis Project? <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. If, well, no, I, like, no joke. Seriously. The stuff that happened on Star Trek. I mean, yeah. look, at, look at the next generation when Dr. Beverly Crusher was walking around in 10 Ford. She had a tablet. She had a tablet. And look yeah. here. Now we have the tablet. Tablets. It's the same thing. Yeah. I don't know. If, I, I'm kind of a Trek fan myself, and we'll, we'll lose some people here for a second. Sorry. Sorry. Oh, well. Uh, I don't know if you remember. There was an episode of, of, of Next Generation where there were these children that had been genetically modified by these scientists to, to have uh, hyper-efficient immune systems. And th- there was basically a basic flu or cold that was killing everybody. Because their proactive immune system had caused it to 
like it went out and it attacked the the pathogen before it even got in their body, and 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 whatever it did like screwed everybody up. I mean that that is the world of science fiction. But man, some of the things these idiots are doing with science today, you go, have you guys ever cracked a science fiction book? Because um, I've read the end and it sucks. I mean, we see things like that from time to time. That like you're just saying now with everybody with a tablet. If you look at the old uh, old Star Trek from the '60s. Did the commuters look an awful? Uh, communicators look an awful lot like flip phones. Uh-huh. Which now the flip phone is the, yeah, that's that's dead technology. <laughs> Remember they flipped open. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Kirk here. I'm with uh, Spock, McCoy, and some guy that will be dead in five minutes. Uh, mm-hmm. Get ready to beam us up, except for the dead guy. Yeah. You know? Leave him. <laughs> Leave him. We've triaged him out. He was going to yeah. take too many of our resources. Yeah, his name was Yeoman Bates, so he was going to die anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so um, on your thoughts here, I mean, I, it sounds to me like you would be a pretty big fan. Uh, you, you do your own clinics and training. I'm sure you'd love people to come there, but I would think you'd be a big fan of people making an investment in medical training regardless of how they did it. Absolutely. I don't care who you train with, just that you get training. Um, if you're looking for for places to go to receive that training, I definitely recommend that you, you um, know how to do first aid. Red Cross first aid, CPR. If if you're sitting if you're sitting at home running around with your with your quick clot and your your cat tourniquet or your TK4 or your soft TY, whatever, I don't care. If you're running around with that but you don't know how to do CPR, you're not doing yourself a favor. So learn how to do CPR for sure. Um, I'm obviously a fan of my own classes because I think that they are, are most specifically tailored to folks who would call themselves preppers or who are interested in preparedness. Wilderness Medicine also is a, an excellent place to go for, for some great training that um, has different offices around the United States. So there's a lot of venues that people can seek out instruction from, and I encourage people to do that. And you know, to also be honest about what their needs are. And if you can make an educated, informed decision onto, as to your education consumption, then do it by all means, whether it's with me or somebody else. Well, tell people a little bit about the training you are doing. You're doing these, these, basically these training clinics all over the country. Yes, sir. I'm traveling every two to three weeks. I am a busy little Chiquita. The curriculum that I developed, I called Medical, Medical Prep 101. And let me tell you, it is a very challenging thing to distill the sum total of my nursing experience and not just my experience in this country, but also elsewhere in the world where I've been in austere environments. It's very challenging to say, okay, I have to be able to take people from all ends of the spectrum, whether they're a housewife or a corpsman or a nurse practitioner or whoever, and sit them down in a class, give them a framework for approach for approaching medical issues that is easily transportable wherever they go, whatever they do. And that's what I did. It took me a, a good amount of time to develop it, but what I try and focus on people is developing their critical thinking skills so we're developing the mind, also developing their hands-on, hand-on skills as to um, assessment, blood pressure, vital signs, know what to look for and how do we ask for it, formulating a plan of care for people under your watch. All these are very important things that are touched on in other areas of, of, of medicine and other areas of healthcare education, but nobody's doing what I'm doing right now, which is taking people from all ends of the spectrum immersing them in the curriculum, giving them just enough information so that they can make informed decisions and take care of their family in the case of, of a disaster. And um, I, every, every month, 
I'm hearing stuff back from my alumni, positive feedback, like, hey, I use this in, in Sefer's case with my husband. Um, one of my alumni in San Antonio, she messaged me back that she had to render aid to a child when she got to the um, to the hospital. It was with an infant. They told her that if she had not taken the steps that she did, that she learned in my class, that the baby would not have made it. So that's obviously very affirming for me, and I'm very passionate about the curriculum, so much so that I have developed the second day of it. Medical Prep 201 will be debuted in uh, Yakima, Washington in October, and my 2014 schedule is getting booked like crazy. I'm already booking into uh, summer of 2014. So if people are interested in kind of a, a more in-depth description as to what the class covers, they can check out the website, www.thepatriotnurse.com. Also there, they will find the full calendar of events in my schedule for the next year. So that's a great place to check stuff out and to get a little bit of more information as to who I am and what I do. Uh, yeah, thepatriotnurse.com is the uh, the most recent, or the uh, the website, and, and you can see her videos too, including one of her more recent videos, uh, TSA stole my gun. Yes. Yes, the TSA did indeed steal my weapon. I am not thrilled about this. I tried to contain my rage in my video and put it into a format to help others who might find themselves in that situation. But needless to say, to say it was a long and arduous process to try and get the ball rolling, and I still have not gotten my weapon back. So it's the thieving fiend, which probably isn't listening to the show, because only your, your listeners are the awesome peeps. This is where the cool kids hang out. But if it should happen via the telephone game or the ripple effect to get to some in a position of power, I really would appreciate getting my gun back. <laughs> well, I told you, they never stole my gun, but they did steal my cheese. But we'll, we'll save that story on the air for <laughs> another day. But yes, TSA stole the Patriot nurse's gun, and they stole Jack Spear Goes Cheese. And I'm not making that up, folks. But uh, hey, Rachel, it's been great having you on the air today. Uh, you're welcome back anytime. Just uh, get with Dorothy for scheduling. Awesome. Thank you, sir. It was a pleasure being here, and thank you to all of your listeners for their support. Folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with Rachel, the Patriot Nurse, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seen our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.